Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Well, uh, for the guys who've been here on uh, the regulars, uh, we've had Deborah on before. Uh, uh, and I think I interviewed Deborah quite a long time ago as well on, the, on one of the earliest videos we did for the channel. Uh, Deborah Lynn Katz has a PhD in psychology with an emphasis, emphasis on human consciousness uh, and owns a master's degree in social work. She's also the director of the International School of Clairvoyance and one of the first schools of its kind to offer successful distance learning programs and seminars. Uh, I know she's an accomplished clairvoyant, remote viewer, medium, energy heater, and she's also done uh, extensive work on the Ingo Swan archives, which she shared with myself and John, and we all contributed on looking at that recently as well, and that's amazing work. She's also done lots of ARV projects, and one that really interested me was the the one I'm hoping we're going to talk about is the Project Firefly one. Uh, and I think it'd be good right now because we have a huge community of ARV enthusiasts that are uh, coming along and they're mainly on the Reddit forums and they're all trying different techniques and different approaches. So it's good to get, you know, some background on, on what ARV research Deborah's been doing with John Knowles, who's here as well, and their new book that's coming out. And also the uh, Project Firefly on, you know, what happened there, what went wrong, and what we can learn from it. So that's the introduction. So, yeah, well, take it from there. How do you want to go with this, Deborah? Do you want people to ask you questions, or would you like to show any any slides? I think you mentioned you might have some slides. Yeah, well, and, and I do want to give a shout-out to John Knowles. John, if you want to speak up at any time, please do so, because John was uh, – very much involved in, in Project Firefly. And I think my first question to everybody, just so I know their backgrounds, how many, when I say Project Firefly, how many of you even know what that is? If you do, raise your hand, please. And if you could just keep your hand up for a little bit after you raise it so I can see. If you know what Project Firefly is or was, raise your hand there. There's a few as well in the uh, participants channel there, yeah. Okay, if you, uh, and if you don't, I think everyone knows how to raise their hand. Okay, okay. so you're doing it, or you could do it um, on the, the little hand icon. Yeah. Next yeah. Thing to you. Okay, so it looks like there's a mixture here. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I'm a little disappointed that, that not everyone is raising their hand uh, because really the whole reason we, put the paper out and it, it was quite quite an adventure and a feat to, to write that up and get that out for a variety of reasons. In addition to that, the project itself, which I'll, I'll give a brief overview and then definitely open it up for questions. But, but our aim, um, myself and my co-authors, some of you know Igor Grigic, never, I'm sure if I'm saying his last name right, but G-R-I- GC, I think I'm spelling it right, but Igor and Teresa uh, Fenley and myself uh, put the paper out, but then we had a lot of help. John helped um, and others helped. And the reason we did that was because we really felt that so much effort went into that project and we wanted to make sure that future generations could learn from it because 
all of us have been doing associative remote viewing for quite for many years and we're really at the point where we don't want people to have to go through the same mistakes and questions and everything that we did of course there's learning when that happens but progress can only happen if if you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel so to speak and there were some forces that would have rather the project just gone away because it didn't turn out didn't turn out so well, even though a lot was learned from it. And I feel like even today, um, the certain practices are being um, carried forward based on the knowledge of what was learned from that project. But so our hope was that people would learn from it. And, and, and for that matter, learn, it's so important that we can learn from each other. And that's why I really appreciate this venue. Uh, anything that's shared on social media, it, uh, one of my goals has been to do as many write-ups as I can about not just my work, but everyone's work, because so much value is is coming out of applied projects, especially from people's projects where maybe they're not formal researchers, they're, they're not going to get their papers in formal journals, but they're sharing their work through these social media forums. But my concern is that that it's so easy for that to go away, right? Just more posts come up and before you know it, that's just gone. There's not a record of it. And, you know, it might be really relevant to the people who are involved in the conversation, but what's going to happen six months from now, a year, five years from now with all that great conversation, if we don't get it into a form that other people can can read and build on. So that was really the reason why we put out the paper on Project Firefly. Now you're probably saying, okay, but what is Project Firefly? Well, uh, I thought it might be fun to take you through a little trip down memory lane. And so I'm gonna see, I have a ton of documents open on my computer. So just bear with me for a minute because I'll see if I can do my screen share here. And uh, let's just see what we've got going on. I have a few different presentations open. Okay, I think this is it right here. And I, I wanna just say that because the project didn't turn out so well, it's easy to for it to sound like there might be sour grapes or there might be criticisms. And while yes, I think that, that it's fair to criticize any project of my own or anyone else's, do want to say that really there is just for myself and the overall feeling of this whole project was that people well people really appreciated being part of this and and having the experience and that was voiced by just about everyone who was involved even though at different points there were frustrations disagreements uh, different ways of seeing things so let me just make sure I'm on the right screen here. Yes, this looks good. So Project Firefly started in August 2014. And this is the presentation that was presented to a group of viewers at the Applied Precognition Project. And I'm sure many people here are very familiar with uh, App or Applied Precognition Project, which is uh, overseen by Marty Rosenblatt, I'm sure a lot of people are actually actively 
involved with Marty's groups even right now. And I was his co, I was the co-webmaster with Michelle Bulgatz. We were both the original webmaster of APP. And now Marty was doing projects way before that as uh, PIA, Physics Intuition Applications, and under some other names. So he's been around for decades, but in around, I think it was around 2013 or so, he started app and that was when I was the webmaster. So I was very in very, very involved in everything going on within app. And I have to say for a number of years, I was actually more, I would say my energy and attention was going more to ARV and to what was happening in app than it was to my own business or work, even though that was going, that was kind of on automatic and really my attention was here. So that being said, what was Project Firefly again? Well, let's find out from, this was the original presentation. And so this was given by Carla, Carlos Mina, who was a business ma man. He, he, he spread his time out between uh, Brazil and I'm forgetting John, we'll hear from John in a little bit and he could clarify that, but he was- uh, Spain, uh, Spain and Brazil. Spain and Brazil. Okay. And so he gave this presentation. I'm not going to give the whole thing, but basically he felt like we should take the talent that was already involved in APP, not try to put together a new group, but to take together the existing group and have everybody pull their money together. And, and he had a proposal that said, and I'll get to that slide, that uh, when you, let, let me just get to it. Uh, so Firefly is not a group, it's a meta group that is a group of groups. He said it was the most ambitious project ever undertaken in the history of associative remote viewing for pro profit. And it aimed at creating wealth aggressively. So according to his calculations, we would be able to, and he did some simulations, we were gonna be using Kelly wagering, which maybe John can explain a little bit better than I can, but we were going to be able to basically make $16 million. And so it would assume for betting a 60% base hit rate, that means we will be betting 20% of total assets in each trial in order to maximize our growth rate. And if we reach a 60% total hit rate after 240 trials, that's now keep in mind, we'll talk about that number of trials because I think this is a big question even right now with people involved in some projects with the applied precognition uh, project is the number of trials and how much work viewers have to do to try to get to meeting certain goals where they will obtain a profit. So I think that may be a, kind of the overall question here is, uh, is number of trials and, and whether or not that's something that's a good idea or not. But so, so after 240 trials, we should expect 125 on our Excel sheet for each $125,000 on our Excel sheet for each $1,000 invested. If we manage to improve on our base hit rate and reach 65%, we may expect around 16 million on our Excel sheet for each 1,000 invested after 240 trials. So that basically summarizes 
what we were setting out to do. Now we made some adjustments as we went along, but this is pretty much what the overall goal was. So there were a few things that needed to happen. We needed to have investors who would invest. Uh, now we, uh, I don't remember if we had a minimum investment. I don't think we really did. If we did, it was maybe asking people for $100 or so. There, I would say the average investment was somewhere around $1,000, but don't quite quote, quote me on that because I haven't looked at that in a while. John, do you remember? Was there an average? I think the minimum was $100, but, but I think the average was lower than 1000 but some maybe close to that. I'm not sure. And and we had we had about sixty investors, and with, this paper was published in the journal uh, JSC Journal for Scientific Exploration, and I did send as a link to it. It's also on academia.edu, but the paper is available, and I hope people will read it and and um, sometimes not so good with remembering all the details. So if you want the specific numbers, you'll see it in there. It's in the so, chat window. Okay, great. So yes, so basically we got started. We had, this was a year long project. We had about 60 investors and many of those were remote viewers, not all of them. There were some investors who weren't remote viewers, but a lot of them were. And we pretty much all agreed that we would we would take turns doing the remote viewing. Now, usually this was done as parts of different groups and I can change my slides for this. Let's see if I have another presentation to show you. Well, I'll just talk a little bit cause it might take me a while to, uh, I'll look this up when John is talking, but we um, pretty much for a year, we had different groups. We had about 10 different groups at any given time supplying predictions. And then we had a few different traders. So Carlos was a trader, Igor was a trader, Marty was a trader, John filled in as a trader for a short period of time. And so, so the thing was, there was so much coordination involved, you can imagine, because we were doing we were doing ARV trials, but we were doing different approaches. So there was a number of groups that were using the winning entanglements computer program that Marty had developed. Now these groups had already been operating. Uh, many of the groups were already operating before Firefly started. So the again the idea was. They were, these groups are all operating independently, but under the umbrella of APP, and then, and and then they're going to contribute uh, trials or predictions. So, for example, I was part of the Sublime group, and so we were not using Marty's winning entanglement program. We were doing ARV trials, but for sports. Whereas other groups especially his winning entanglements at that time, they were, well, I think originally they were split between some doing sports and some doing financial predictions. But this is gonna become relevant because basically oh, I can get down to our bottom line is that we found that some groups were doing better than others, but they were pretty much in this project treated equally. So there, there was, and actually sometimes groups that had been underperforming 
were contributing more predictions than the groups that had been doing better. So it wasn't like someone looked at this and said, oh, well, well, the groups that have a better hit rate, we're going to use them more. Instead, it was just more kind of what was convenient because so many predictions had to be added to the pot, so to speak. So one of our final conclusions in the end, after almost all the money was lost, was that there hadn't been a careful enough analysis to see what was the, the higher performing groups. There, there also was the problem in that we sustained some early losses to begin with, and that hadn't really been calculated into the overall picture of what do you do if you have early losses, so a lot of your money, a big chunk of your money is already gone. Now, some adjustments were made, so the, that 20% figure of, of the pot each time, that eventually decreased. Uh, so that was also a, a factor, and I don't know how long into it, but at that point, we, we just sustained early losses. The other thing was that even despite my own, my own uh, feel, strongly stated feelings initially that we do trial runs before we actually got started wagering large amounts of money, some of the people involved just wanted to jump in and get started right away and and go with that 20%. And I still today think that that was a mistake, although I can't say would things have gotten better, but maybe they wouldn't have made the 20% the wagering if let's say during the, the pre-trial run or the practice run, if things hadn't gone so well, maybe things would have been different to, from the start. So another recommendation I would have with a project like this is that there be initial trials first just to work out some of the bugs. And that really wasn't, wasn't done. So I thought there overall there could have been some better management of the of the whole project. Um, the a couple other conclusions also were that there was just so many trials and so much going on. And another presentation I came across, let's see, I think this was this was um, Chris George's end of project. So it fast forward a year later. Uh, Chris Georges, who was one of the original APP managers, he's no longer involved, but he did, um, this was our financial statement. And this is just, uh, was just showing that the money was actually wagered and there, there was no fraud or anything involved. And I came across, yes, Igor gave a presentation because in the end, Igor was the remaining trader. Uh, at some point, Carlos left the project and uh, and also I would say Marty got overwhelmed after doing so many predictions. And so Igor was basically left at the end as the trader and he's had some recommendations. And so I came across his PowerPoint that he gave to the investors at the very end. And he said his recommendations were eliminate complexity. Uh, in my opinion, and let me just make my screen bigger there. And are you guys seeing my screen? No, we're still seeing the first uh, presentation. Okay, then let me just get out. Sometimes you have to reset your... 
screen. And let's see, I have too many screens open and I can't find my screen share at the moment. Sorry, one moment here. Yeah, take your time, no worries. Oh, here we go. New share. Okay. All right. That should be better. Can you see the blue screen up? Yes, uh, we see that now. Okay. Yes. All right. So he said, all in one, his recommendations at the end was to keep things simple. This had been way too complicated. Scheduler defines a day or days in the week when we will have firefly trade instead of, I, I think the way that they were doing it was basically every day. And it, it just got to be too much. A tasker takes care of financial instrument, trade time date, trader executes the trade based on firefly entity. Sometimes the division of roles weren't, wasn't quite so clear. And there was a lot of communication coordination that had to take place between the project managers who are dealing with the remote viewers and then the traders themselves. And when you're dealing with, with Forex and just under such tight time restraints, sometimes there was some confusion or, or miscommunications. I think there also was the coordination between, sometimes they had more than one group giving a prediction for, for the same trial. And there really wasn't anything in place to say, how do you deal with if, let's say there's two or three groups offering predictions, what if those predictions conflict with each other? Or what if one group has slightly higher, stronger prediction that, than the other? What do you do with that? And, and there really wasn't any protocols put in place to deal with that. And just as a side note, I feel like that's still an issue, not just with a big, big project like this, but even for just an individual project manager, if you have five viewers and let's say three of them have strong predictions to one photo and then or target and two have strong predictions to another, what, what do you do with that? And different project managers handle it in different ways. Maybe some of it is knowing your viewer and having confidence. Yes, this viewer tends to be correct. So I'm going to go with that. But there, there's definitely pitfalls with that. And, and I've seen that work just in the opposite direction is a project manager has overconfidence in one viewer and goes with what they're saying, ignoring the others, and then there's a miss. So this is something that has yet to be worked out. And maybe we can talk about that too. And then let's see if there's anything else here. His, his overall suggestion was keep things simple. And, and we had questions too, like, do, is it really beneficial to have so many trials? That's, that's a question that I personally have is why so many, so many trials? I understood for somewhat for this project, why it was being called for based on the Kelly wagering strategy and keeping the, the wagers, well, actually 20% was considered pretty aggressive. So 
maybe John, do you, do you remember really what the thinking was that we needed so many trials? Well, I got a lot I could add here. I don't want to spend too much time because I know people are here to question you, but I, I could talk about the project for, for a few minutes, if you don't mind. Please, please do. Um, just to lend some um, background to it too. So how come so many people started to invest so much money so quickly? That hasn't happened. It was partly because Carlos, who I consider a dear friend, because uh, I've, I've met him in Spain and in Brazil both, so we spent time together. Um, he's very persuasive. And when he came on the scene, um, he showed this Excel file that was uh, that could create simulations really quickly. And I think a lot of us sort of said, "Wow, you know, let's go for this." Um, I know a few people didn't, and part partly the reason that we got into it so quickly without doing pilot study was that we had all this data from APP, all these groups had make, been making predictions. So the thought was, gee, we're all enthusiastic, let's go for it. But I'll have to say Deborah was very um, you know, critical of various aspects during the process. And uh, I, I was on the advisory team and I would say we didn't listen to Deborah probably quite enough. Um, that advisory team was, uh, or the, the management was Carlos, he was chief in charge and then Marty was there and then Igor and the three of them were all skilled traders so uh, they, they needed a fourth trader to, so I was sort of the apprentice um, and also uh, just consulting on other things but one thing I wanted to bring out too was that there was uh, when things started going wrong with the multiple votes uh, Deborah mentioned about having different groups offering a prediction but actually there was a multiple vote procedure that Carlos implemented and Marty too, to some extent, but I don't know the specifics of that. As I say, I was sort of an advisor. I was on the management team, but I was also viewing. Um, I want to point out though, that once the group started, uh, the predictions started failing, we lost a lot of money. At one point, the management said, well, let's go to the solo viewers who are doing well. And I have them in front of me here. Um, I happen to be one of the solo viewers. There were four or five of us based on our records in APP. And as soon as they started basing the predictions on the solo viewers, boom, we all went down to 50% rather quickly. So that didn't really um, solve the problem. You know, we knew going in that KISS, keep it simple, viewers, <laughs> was, was the rush word. Ed May has been trumpeting that for decades. You know, he uses only the best viewers, quote unquote, and, his, and only one task, one an analyst and so forth. And we knew we were going against that, but we said, well, let's try it. So we did, but Igor is correct. And Deborah and all of us, several of us have come to these conclusions that it works best when you have fewer viewers, fewer complexities, fewer loops, the possible loops. And so to that extent, um, APP using the groups in this Firefly, you know, showed that it wasn't gonna work out. There were further complications too about whether the actual statistics that APP had acquired among the groups were accurate. And another viewer had pointed that out. I, uh, it's another complex topic we won't go into maybe here. But anyway, I just wanted to raise those few points about the, the Firefly. Yeah. Yeah. Th thank you, John. And one of the final things that came out of this was an awareness that it could be useful to, to use, again, the, the higher performing groups or higher performing viewers. And when I say higher performing, some of that 
was that there within ABP, as in any remote, remote viewing community, there is going to be a range of experience with the people. So it's not necessarily that you have these people that are the intrinsically so much better than the others. It's just at any given time, you some of the people didn't have any training, just any experience, and and their predictions were being treated equally initially as those that had a lot more experience. And so I, I, that was one understanding that came out of this. And so really APPI, which many of you are familiar with now. So again, there was app and then Marty started APPI right at the tail end of Firefly. And, and that was supposed to be the nonprofit portion of app. Not sure exactly how that works, but, but in terms of nonprofit, but he was then in APPI only going to be using select viewers. And so that started at the tail end. And so myself and Chris Georges started with Marty as a team under APPI. I think we were the, the first or one of the first to be signed up for them. And then we did just 11 trials, which were 11 or 12, um, which were quite successful. I think we were at like an 89% hit rate, but but we ended up stopping uh, because we um, found that some of our predictions were starting to be used or had been used for Firefly. And they really weren't, we weren't told that they were going to be used for that. So I just have this thing where I am very particular about if my sessions are used for something, I want to know what they're used for, because I believe that behind the scenes when something is going on, you know, the viewer, at least myself, but I know a lot of other viewers, they're aware of it. They're aware that something's going on and it, it can really have the effect of kind of driving you nuts if, you know, something's up, but you don't know what. And so at that point, uh, just decided, well, you know, going to take a step back. But then um, Marty did start another project with Mike Austin, which really is the currently what is happening within APPI is an offshoot of what he started with Mike Austin. And so I was also the first viewer on that project. But again, after uh, I was burned out at that point and, and stepped away, but we might talk a little bit about that too. I know um, Des said, you said you had some questions about the way it's set up and how many um, predictions that viewers are doing. So things uh, probably have changed a bit since then, but might be able to speak to a little bit of that. So in a nutshell, that is really what Firefly was about. And there had been some other projects as well that were large group projects that were done uh, by App and Marty prior to this but this was definitely the, the, the largest in terms of his investments and people involved. So any questions or deaths? I have, I, well, I personally have tons. Uh, and I'm not that really into ARV, um, although I've played with it myself, as, as many of the people know. It, but, you know, when I see a project like this, I see, you know, the scale of it and the, uh, the management of it. And the results, I see that, you know, I, I like looking at projects like this because I see that there's so many things that I think we could learn from projects like this on on what the phenomenon is behind remote viewing because, you know, it has its peccadilloes, we just don't know. And like, John, I mean, John's, John's uh, talk just now where he said that 
the, I believe the rates were going down. So then you looked at looking at the single viewers to help out. And he said he was one of them. And am I right in saying that you had a really, you guys that when you were helping out, you had a really good rate and that's why you were recruited. And then the moment you recruited, your rates dropped. That's right. During the uh, Firefly viewing itself. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what were the what were the rates before? Were they significant? You know, were you like on the 68, 78 kind of rates? I haven't rechecked them, but I think they're around from around sixty eight percent to maybe close to eighty percent for the four or five right. viewers that we're talking about. I mean, for me, just on a personal thing, oh, you know, because I'm trying to work out what the mechanism is behind, Sai, you know, if it's brain brain sinking or or something else that's happening here, that 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 small thing alone that you you guys independently had good rates and then the moment you were kind of recruited into this project and stuff that your rates went down that that's the kind of research i like i find interesting because i ask myself well why would that happen what would the phenomenon be behind that to uh, to make that happen i mean it could i'm kind of thinking in my head off the top of my head it could be various different things um but that phenomenon alone is it massively intrigues me as a as a remote viewer how how and why that kind of effect would happen do you guys have any ideas on why that might have been? Do you think you may have been affected by, I don't know, what was the what was the tone when you were doing that when you were recruited? Was was it on a on a downward slide? Do you think that might have been an effect? I, I personally think yeah that uh, the fact that we were all summoned uh, for our sessions at that point in the midst of a project that was going down. And I knew that because I was uh, in, close to the management team. I don't know if uh, Teresa and some of the others knew that too. So yeah, we got mixed up in this huge thing that was not keeping it simple. And so the complexities overwhelmed the whole process and we got sucked into that. Just a very superficial view maybe, but that's that's how I look at it. Yeah, yeah very interesting, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're opening this up then. Do anyone there, if you, as I said, if you want to put your hand up, I see Don's got his hand up. So go ahead, Don, if you ask your question away. Hi. Uh, okay, so I don't know anything about Project Firefly, so I'm going to be asking a lot of dumb questions. But uh, the idea was you got some people together and um, they wanted to invest money, use um, associative remote viewing to, uh, to do um, a wagering. Is that right? Yes, and and the people were already mostly together. There were lots of different groups operating together. So they, while well, operating independently, but under the organization called APP. So that was part of it. Was it, it wasn't necessarily necessary to go out and recruit other viewers or groups because we were all there together. Just at that point, we hadn't been people would individually wager, but they wouldn't discuss their wagers or that wasn't really, there, there was never a, a group collective of bringing the money together. At least there hadn't been for a, a number of years. Oh, okay. Was the money pooled or not? Yes, the money was pooled. And it- So it, then uh, what were you saying about they didn't come together? No, I'm I, saying prior to this, prior to Project Firefly, groups were operating, but not pooling their money together. When they came together for this project, it was the first time within APP that the viewers took their money and pooled it into one pot. And then that pot was wagered with by, by three different traders as part of the group. 
Okay, so that gets to the next question. You mentioned wagering, but what kind of wagering was being done? Well, it was using Forex. So it was placing trades on the Forex system. So which is which is Don, what? Yes. John, can you explain Forex? Foreign exchange is, is the biggest uh, market or has been the biggest market, way bigger than the stock market. And you're betting pairs of coin of coins, their values against each other. And Marty and Igor were very and, and Carlos were all very experienced with that kind of betting. So you're betting on, on the coins relative movements to each other each day. Uh, are we talking about um, uh, betting on uh, uh, currency? Is that the uh, currency values? Yes, currency pairs, the Australian dollar and the US dollar, something like that, a pair, they, they have a value against each other and that varies during the day. It's called Forex foreign exchange trading. And, and then the, the prediction is, is it gonna go up or down, right? By at a certain time of the day, is, is it going to go up or down? And this is basically the same format that if you use the S&P or, or other stock trading platforms, that's one way you can place a wager. Is that by, by five o'clock or whatever time is set, does it go up or down? And so then that lends itself to associative remote viewing because you've got binary options one way or the other. Okay, so then uh, I guess my last question was, I think John mentioned something about um, you started off doing poorly, then I think what was said was you started looking at the um, higher performance remote viewers and you started using them and then John did you say you immediately dropped to 50% by doing that. Yes, the four viewers who were selected their rates went down to about 50% rather quickly. So in other words, selecting the higher performance viewers actually worked against you. Well, well it was better than 48%, which was the overall at the end, but it wasn't enough. And I'm sorry, it was, was choosing the higher performance viewers unsuccessful in, in the reverse? Yeah, it actually, yeah. okay. It was unsuccessful. But, but keep in mind at that point, that was a last ditch effort because things were so bad at that point. And we had been going, uh, John, what would you say we had already been going for about what, eight months or so at that point? I think fewer months, but uh, just another detail. So after that didn't work, uh, Carlos, I don't know if Marty took part in this, actually went, out, went kind of wild with a solution about picking words, uh, using 10 words, 10 words. and choosing among them. It was some very strange system which had no basis in, in, uh, that I know of historically. So that was, a, that was a truly last ditch attempt. And that partly led to some of the discord among some of the managers. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. But in, in our analysis, we, we uh, when this was all over and we were looking at writing up the paper and we had some people like uh, Mark Samuelson and Igor, they started to look back prior to Firefly at, at apps and, and some of the group stats, because really it wasn't as if the managers for Firefly carefully evaluated everything that had happened before to make their decisions. It was more just like, oh, we're all together and we're all already making predictions and we're doing great. But it wasn't like careful analysis of the data to see what groups 
were contributing, were having better results. And so some of the winning entanglement groups that use this computer system that now, right now, viewers, this is relevant to today because people are still using that system. And some people are having success, but overall at the time, Mark and Igor did an analysis and found out that some of those groups for for like a year had been at like a 47, 48% rate even before Firefly. And yet they were still used in Firefly and in some cases used more often just because it's it's easier. The, Marty likes to use this system because it's easy because you viewers can go in, they can make their predictions without having to have other people help them with the predictions. It's more automatic, so it's more convenient. It's it's a really cool system, but, um, but we found, especially when that system was used for financial predictions, they had been operating at a 48% rate. And now why would anybody, if, if everyone had known this, and you know, it's not that any, I don't think anyone was trying to hide it, it's just that it wasn't carefully analyzed beforehand and if we had known it you know would we be investing money for groups that are not performing high enough but that you could really look at the the sociology of this whole thing you know how did this all happen and again we were a group of really excited people the sound yeah. carlos got us really excited and then there were it was kind of like the what's what's the example of someone leading off uh, everyone else off a cliff and you know no one invested that much money so that it wasn't like this huge tragedy or anything if anything it was just more time involved and uh, as john said for me i i saw all this to begin with and pretty much people didn't want to listen because they were excited they they didn't want people you know putting in that careful protocols or taking time to to do this any different people were excited they wanted to get going as quickly as they could and and so that was the results of not looking at the stats first so can i just i just want to make sure i'm clear in my head and head on this so you guys thought that you were running at a 62 percent accuracy generally overall mm -hmm. but on analysis afterwards, when you went back and had a look at it, the prior accuracy wasn't at 62, it was at 48%. Well, for some groups that were contributing. Now, other okay. groups were up higher. And okay, yeah. if I, I'll look for, if I can open up, I think it's the paper. Because 48%, that, that's less than flipping a coin, isn't it? Yes. You might as well just flip a coin. But that yeah. certainly wasn't the case. If you looked collectively at all the app groups, it was at 62 collectively, but not, but, but then that would have to be balanced for this project. And instead, some of the groups that were operating at 40% contributed more predictions than the other groups. So like, for example, our sublime, sublime group which is a, a small, there's like six of us that have now been working together for years. We were at a, a like a 65% or sometimes higher rate, but, but we did a lot less predictions because we don't use the computer and we, and it's sports and it just takes us longer to do what we're doing. And so 
we contributed less predictions than some of the other groups yeah. for this. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's very complicated, isn't it? But very interesting. That's why, that's why I wanted to discuss it. Cause I think, you know, it's like when we have a bad RV session, you've got to look back for your bad RV sessions and find things that you can learn from. And I think there's just huge amounts to learn from a project like this. Yeah. And, um, and I'm sorry if we're not, or I'm not presenting this so well, because today I was just thinking we were just going to chat. So I didn't really prepare a whole. It's great. Honestly, it's fine. Um, Mark's got a question. He's had his hand up for a while. Do you want to, do you want to ask your question, Mark? Hi, Deborah. Good to see you again. Oh yes, you too. Um, so my question, and and maybe John knows this a little bit better, but I've I kind of looked into the um, the Kelly betting process. Now I have a I have a background in in poker and um, bankroll management is like really a serious thing, and I'm just amazed at uh, putting twenty percent of my bankroll up um, as opposed to maybe having smaller chunks so that I have more opportunities to, to go at it. And if I have a downturn, it's not so bad. So um, maybe somebody could address that question as to why uh, that percentage didn't get adjusted sooner. And uh, how that, how 20% comes up into that, um, into that process, Kelly wise. Well, I'm, I'm not very, versed in Kelly, I posted in the chat some information about it, you know, the formula. Carlos was much more versed in it and felt that because we had 60% going in, 20% Kelly would be okay. So that didn't turn out to be true. I don't know why they, uh, he didn't, uh, and Marty stopped the 20% sooner than they did. They went, uh, but it was like a couple of, several weeks before they really caught on to that, maybe a couple of months. I haven't reviewed the paper in detail, but that's that was the main thing that's, we had, supposedly we had 60% beforehand, so why not do 20% Kelly? And, and Kelly, again, is based on, it, it only works if you are starting from a, a successful rate to begin with. So it was based on that you had to have uh, we, this, the 20% would have never happened if, if everyone hadn't thought that we were all operating at a 62% rate. And I think when Carlos heard that, Carlos has been involved in remote viewing for a while, but he hadn't really been directly involved with APP right before this. And so, so if he hadn't, if he had thought that the group wasn't at 62%, he wouldn't have come up with the 20% rate. Let me ask Mark, is that, do you think that was an erroneous assumption uh, to, to do 20% based on 60% success rate? Um, well, it's all about knowing what you know, right? And so if you, if when you first formed your group, I think Deborah was right that you should have probably done some trials just to say like, really, what was our sampling? Are we really at 60%? Um, and then go from there, but still 20% is just a huge, uh, a huge amount of your ammo to fire at one time. And so um, if you're a little more conservative and you run it over a longer period, you can, uh, 
you can encounter any kind of swing and it's not going to be a big deal. Just may take you a little longer to recover that, but um, yeah, 20% is it's, that's a tough number. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially if you're planning 240 trials to think that that wouldn't be. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of trials. How, how many was that a week? Is that something like three or four a week for a year? Yeah, which it it didn't sound so much for the viewers because again there were number a number of groups, but that became a huge management yeah, thing, yeah. especially for those that were trading. And there wasn't all that much thought out about how how they would. Well, John, you could talk about it. I, I there was to me there was some kind of lack of quite awareness of what you would do with all the communications that were then going to the traders. So there's the, and, and in the end, Igor recommended that there be maybe like another layer of people because just doing the trading itself would take some time and focus besides trying to get all these communications and figure things out. And it did seem like some, <coughs> some of the predicting or the decision-making about which way it was going to go was on the traders at times. Uh, there was some confusion because sometimes the project managers would say, you know, here, this is the prediction. But I think there were some times where the traders didn't always go with what the, the manager said, at least for our sublime group. I know there were a couple instances where Nancy said, well, you know, it maybe this should be a pass, but then a prediction was made anyway. And the traders had so much going on that they couldn't take the time. And, and sometimes they might've come back and said to Nancy, well, you know, why is it a pass and which viewer got what? But there was just too much going on to really put too much attention onto what each, where the predictions were coming from and yeah. who was in them. Sounds like, I mean, you know, from an outside view, it sounds like a, uh, a huge management task um, and maybe it would have benefited from from you know learning from the government compartmentalization of of people in specific roles this is your role do it you know you don't have to mess with the with the rest of the noise kind of mess going on very interesting uh sasha you've had your hand up for a while would you like to ask your question uh, hi um okay so i like that am more interested in kind of figuring out the nature of the system that we're in and how remote viewing works within that so i want to ask a hard question i don't want it to come off as judgmental though um i'm just trying to get at the underlying information system so i believe that the system or the matrix or the reality whatever you want to call it shows a preference when we take on a role that either contributes new information into the system or, and I think this is maybe more relevant, uh, increases the complexity of information in the system. And so a lot of how we go about doing that is through our work. Uh, we add value or we increase complexity of the information that's, that's available in the system, that exists in the system. So if you're gambling, you're not actually adding value. You're not actually adding new information and you're not actually adding uh, increased complexity into the existing system. And in addition to that, and I say this um, in response to the decline effect of the more accurate viewers, um, 
for every dollar that you win gambling, especially for horse races, sporting events, some of that is coming from a gambling addict who just lost his house, right? And so there, you're taking money from maybe the more vulnerable people, um, the people who maybe don't have as much control or as much free will over their actions. And the forex is different. Uh, and the forex, I think, there's more rigging and there are more politics that are involved in that. So I don't really know if this applies to that system, as although it kind of does, because but on the level of the country. So if Argentina, if if the big players kind of want to push Argentina into a certain position so that they have to rely more on the IMF, then they'll push that currency down. And so there are games that are being played at that level that are equivalent to to this effect of taking money from a gambler um, and just creating a net harm, right? So if you're increasing a country's dependence on the IMF um, by reducing the value of its currency, then that's then that might work for your financial gain, but it works to the detriment of the people who now have less purchasing power, right? And more inflation um, or just can't afford to buy food as easily. And so I'm wondering if the system somehow differentiates between activities that we do when we're using Psy, when we're using our remote viewing, that are fulfilling this role of contributing new information to the system or increasing the complexity of the information that exists in the system versus doing work that that isn't actually adding value, isn't actually adding information, and all it's doing is moving numbers around, but the net effect, it could be argued, is negative. There, it's causing more, I don't know, I don't want to say, oh, it's causing more suffering in the world. Like, I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to come off as it, that, that that's what it's about. Um, but that's just something that I'm curious about. Would we see better effects if we were using Psy and remote viewing for things that constructively add something of value, something novel, uh, increases the complexity of the information in the system? So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, gosh, there's there's a lot there. I would say that there is the belief that what you believe will have an impact. And so if you do think that you're doing harm or there's something wrong with uh, being part of this system as you outlined that maybe those people will do less well. There was a big project before this yeah, years before where, where Lori Williams and her husband were part of that project. And initially they did like a hundred trials that were supposedly all correct. These were just very, very short projects using ideograms. And, but they didn't know that, that the project involved placing wagers. And then as soon as they found out, their results plummeted. So at least Lori believes that it had to do with like her view of, of money and, and what should be done with money and, and also the pressures that knowing that that the remote viewing it may result in somebody winning or losing. So there, there's all things wrapped up into that. And uh, what else can I say? I'm wondering if it's not necessarily the beliefs of the individual, but it's rather the nature of the system itself that looks to prioritize uh, increasing information, increasing complexity, so that there's actually a response, not just based on our beliefs and our attitudes towards this, but the system itself. Yeah, I don't know. 
there's a lot of people making a lot of money from the system. So then you'd have to ask, well, is there something about using your psychic abilities that would be different than just somebody who just places trades and makes millions, billions of dollars? And you know, it's hard to say that those people aren't using their psi abilities either, just in not through not through this method that we're using here. But I think also we have to be kind of getting back to the question of, well, some of the viewers at the end who were performing better than their results went down. And keep in mind, there was a lot of individual stress. But the other thing is you can never look in a project involving associative remote viewing or a complex setup. You can never just say that the results are only due to the viewer because you've got the people rating their sessions, the people issuing predictions. We don't know with the with say John's sessions, what did he did were they accurately judged? Maybe there were times where there should have been a pass and they were so desperate that they weren't passing. We don't know what the pass rate was. Again, there were so many when you have so many predictions that have to be issued, there's going to be uh, a tendency to not want to pass. And that could be that could have been the reason for the results to go down, whereas their results were up higher before because there was more passing before. So we, we really have to be careful when we're unpacking all of this. And just as a final thing, I just would like to put it out there that maybe, maybe there is value in considering this idea that it's not, we don't just have to look at us and what we're doing in our beliefs and, and telepathy and these kind of confounds. Um, I suspect that the system is, is a participant in, in our psi abilities and our psi effects, right? And we see that with spoon bending. You do get a sense that, that the spoon, the reality kind of decides at some certain point to cooperate with you, right, and bend. And so I think in remote viewing, there's less of an awareness of that cooperation, of that reciprocal nature of, of our psi interactions reality. Um, and I'm wondering if we're overlooking something important, right? And, and if, and if maybe if we looked, if there was a way to kind of research that participatory role of reality itself or the matrix of the system, if maybe we could then figure out a way to get better results. <laughs> yeah, if, if you could figure that out, that would be great. Cause that was a question. That was a question that people had. Was, was there a subversive element? And that question is still there even now. I think we all have to even ask that. Is there some X factor that we don't know about that is getting in the way of the progress so that even went to, to show the decline effect. And yeah, we, we don't know, but it does seem like there's something missing, but it could be just even our view of reality is so off base. However, we're thinking things work may just be so different than how they do. And maybe that's the problem that, you know, whether we're still coming from a materialistic uh, or physical perspective of, of reality. We, we just don't know, but something's up, probably a lot that we're just not aware of. Thank you so much. I just wanna uh, comment, I'm reading, I'm reading the document, I've highlighted loads of bits that I wanted to talk about. Um, for me, it seems like the project was a great idea, you know, and I think all projects that try to push the boundaries are great ideas, but it seemed to me, and I don't wanna, uh, criticize anyone anyway, but it, it 
I think the whole project and the thing, the way it felt, is probably because it was all hinged on people put money in based on the belief that they had this 60 plus percent hit rate. When in reality, when I'm looking at, you know, because I highlighted the passages here, when you look at the stats, uh, you're looking at a very low hit rate of, of something like 48 to 51 percent. Uh, you know, when when we went into details here, when they pre when they went back through it and they had a look at what the groups were doing in the Forex and they had a 51% on that. And in the six weeks prior to Firefly start, the WE groups only had a 35 to 38% chance rate looking at uh, Forex. I think if you guys have known, had that information and if all the people putting the money in had that information up front rather than the, the floating 60 plus percent, you would have probably have said at that stage, whoa, let's put, let's put the brakes on. Let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. Yes, yes, because again, with Kelly wagering, because I remember I didn't know anything about it, but I remember researching it, and that was exactly what it said, that if you, if, if you didn't have a high enough hit rate, then you, you, would, you would do less than 20%. So you really had to be very confident about that, that rate. And that really gets into when statistics are put out there, you know, there's a lot that goes into statistics, and this would be a criticism of more formal researchers that we have to be really careful when we just see a statistic and we need to find out what how, how many trials is that based on? Is it speaking to being used within the same methodology that we're planning on using? There, there's a lot of questions there that just were not looked at and i would say maybe today are continuing to not to be looked at that was going to be my next question really because you know we uh, we had marty on and he gave he gave a good talk about app and what they were doing and some stats and stuff but after i read a report like this and i've asked marty questions myself in the past and i don't think i've got a uh, a sufficiently informative answer back I, my worry is that, you know, it looks like it's got great viewers, really committed, you know, and there's a really willpower to do things. But I'm just worried that the the statistics and the reporting behind it probably aren't as accurate as is being said if, if someone would look under the hood. Well, I don't know if it's as far as accurate or just we need more details about what do they mean. So, so it might be accurate. For example, the when... Chris and I got started with our first 11 or so APPI trials. That sounds really great that we had an 89% hit rate and, you know, we did well and, and we made some money uh, because at that time, Marty had the process where he would wager, he was doing his own wagering with his own money. And then we would get 50% of the cut from that. But if, if we had a miss, he would just take the loss. And that worked out really well for those trials. But if I 89%, that sounds great, but that was over 11, that wasn't over 200. And so it's, it's those details that have to be communicated, how many trials have, have there been, and, and what was our method. There, there's other groups that have done well, but again, you have to find out what their method is because, because they may be using things other than just sigh, for example, or, or something to hedge the bet where they may 
or be using a combination of logic and intuition, which is sometimes the case. So you want to find out if that's going on, is that what's going on or is it only, only through intuitive processes? I'd like to add a point there about groups, uh, if I might. Um, just an update on APP. You know, Marty no longer tracks the group results. So we, he was tracking them all those years up to 2016 when I, I stopped being active in APP, although I'm still a member and still support it. So he stopped tracking groups because the group results were not that accurate anymore. So after the total accuracy of groups from the beginning to about now is about 52%. So that's really not enough to make use of. 55, 57% might be, but 52 definitely is not. And and again, you have to keep in mind that some of those groups even now, now I don't know how much of that is APP and APPI where you do have more uh, longer term or more tested viewers. John, is that for just APPI? Well, that's or just for the groups, the APPI, and I have the stats on that as of 2017 um, of the APPI members and their ret re return on investment. I can give you those if you want them. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Uh, Brett, I saw that you had your hand up and then you taken it down. Did you want to ask something or have I put you on the spot? I may have gone away. Do you want to ask your question then, Don? You're up next. Uh, yeah, another dumb question here. Um, I don't know APP and, uh, you know, I'm sort of new to this Firefly thing. Uh, I'm sort of naively thinking they're doing kind of the same thing. They're using um, remote viewing and statistics to try to um, place wagers. Is that part correct? Well, all of this was done within APP, so Applied Precognition Project. So Firefly was done with the Applied Precognition Project groups that were So were you using APP methodology then? Because my, my naive understanding is it's pretty structured, right? They were using associative, mostly, mostly associative remote viewing. So different groups were operating in different ways, but the, the theme was that most people were using the associative remote viewing process. Are, are you, you familiar with, are you familiar with associative remote viewing? Where you have uh, one target or the other based on the outcome? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's what they were using. So Firefly was a, a, project sponsored by the Applied Precognition Project. And a lot of uh, a, a lot of associative remote viewing projects today, uh, or maybe some of them originated from there or from viewers that were connected in with there and now have gone their own way. For example, Igor Grigic, he has his own groups. Now there's a couple of viewers here who are involved in his groups. So Igor was part of APP and now he's gone his own way. So there were still viewers before doing viewing before APP, but uh, I'd say that it's been the most active associative remote viewing group. And Marty has been involved in, in associative remote viewing since just a few years after the, the original uh, US uh, government remote viewing programs disbanded. And so he got involved. In fact, I, he did 
visit SRI when they were still going on. And so he's been doing it for a really long time and it's been through his efforts. And then also groups of us who got enthusiastic and worked with him to promote APP and then it's split off into other areas. So now you have um, Brett does has his groups. Uh, there's a few different managers here who have gone on to do their own thing or some of them started and then segued in, but it's been an influential organization. But when we're talking about stats and any criticism, it's, it's not just for APP, it's for any remote viewers today. I think that Again, a lot of times the stats are just overly simplified. And you know, what is a stat? Now, now again, some formal researchers would look at these and right away would have a whole bunch of red flags come up. And not because there's intentional deceit, it's just, you know, we, we need to have more details. But more Marty, Marty's been very firm. He was a former physicist and he he when he retired, he did not feel like he wanted to, to, to be a scientist as far as publishing formal and things like that. He does still put out some statistics though. So uh, the, the, I think this, it's important to me because I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing Marty. In fact, John and I, we, we have a book coming out on associative remote viewing and I've dedicated my dedication is to Marty because a lot of us would not be here discussing these topics without his contributions. And even though I don't always disagree, don't always agree with him, at the same time, he really has been a huge influence and he's created so many opportunities, free opportunities for people where it didn't cost anything except time and energy to to be involved and a lot of people today are learning remote viewing just from being involved in getting to um, actively participate so it's more kind of for the broader broader um, community just that people should be more descriptive with their statistics uh, one other question um, I think it was John that mentioned there was a multiple vote procedure. It was something before we did the multiple vote pr procedure, and then I guess there was an after period. What were you talking about? Well, it was referring to the point that um, more than one group would do a, a session and submit their data, and the group manager might say, our group favors this, you know, that the, this particular pair is going to go up at 4x, 4x. But several so groups... Was this like a, you're, you're grouping, in other words, like you five viewers are going to do this one and you'll either get A or B target, like that sort of a thing? Yeah, like the Pegasus group might say it's going to go up and, and another group might say it's going to go down and then there might be more groups making the same prediction for the same day. So the general manager has to use a multiple vote procedure uh, to decide how to make the trade. Just oh, okay, like the manager, okay. Just like the group manager has to make a multiple vote procedure. And so just to add a little flavor here, so Marty says that he's often used multiple vote procedure, but he also uses his own intuition. Um, Sumner, the guy we talk about in the book who had the 70% success group over 100 um, trials for what winner, winner, chicken dinner, he would also use the dowser, dousing to see if he was uh, should make a prediction. So there's other secret sauces that get thrown in here along with multiple vote procedure methods. Okay, whoa. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm.
I have another question, guys. I don't know if you can answer this though. And again, it's in the paper. Uh, it also says, and it is, is a is a, a pet topic of mine. Uh, it said displacement uh, had a uh, troubling and commoning uh, common part to play in 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 the project. Do you know how much uh, displacement possibly paid a, paid a fact in the uh, in the bad results, or do you think it was uh, the results went down based on you know you know mismanagement complexity? you know, brain sinking, all kinds of things. And, and, and displacement was only a small part of that. I'm just wondering if displacement was a big part or, or a small part, really. Well, from what I remember, there were a few trials where, where the, at least one viewer, if not several had, in fact, there was one trial where there were several viewers and they almost all had sixes or sevens in their transcript. And then it turned out to be the opposite outcome. So I know that there were a couple of those. I don't really recall now how many. John, do you recall anything about that? Well, I think there was occasions when there were groups, uh, all the groups went one way and it was wrong too. But there was no analysis of the degree of displacement that took place, um, you know, whether completely the wrong target was grasped or data from both projects. That was not analyzed. And the seldom is analyzed, so it's still something that needs a lot of work. Yeah, and that may be where what uh, Sasha was talking about earlier, some kind of something about the system. Why would multiple viewers, multiple groups all together have the wrong prediction and, and really high scores? And I do recall just emotionally how distressing that was because you feel like, okay, at this point, what what can we do with this? We've got all this verification and yet it still isn't working out. But then that also makes me think, okay, well, what's happening with the trade? Again, the trade is predicting a rise and a fall, but there wasn't really the possibility or I, I don't know if it would still be possible to look back or if this probably wasn't tracked well enough. But what, one thing that one reason why our sublime group thinks that we were doing well on our predictions with sports is because there is a more prominent outcome. And it, like, it seems like, for example, if one group let's see, let's say you're predicting whether or not group A or team A or team B is going to, to win the game. If team A has a much larger score and it's very clear throughout the game that they're winning and they win, it seems like our predictions tend to be more correct than let's say at the very last minute, a team one where it was going to be a tie or you were thinking it was going to be one team and at the very end of the game another one came in and they only won by a couple points it seems like in that case our predictions aren't so accurate so when there's some a more definitive outcome with the event where we suspect that there might be better results so then if you think about some of these financial trades where the fluctuations are, are so minute and, and can uh, 
some sometimes even there is a timing factor as well with placing forex trades and I, I don't understand enough to explain this well but i did look into it a bit and even like if it's a matter of seconds sometimes you know it can if you're talking about where it closes uh, up or down and that might change at closing time and if you're in another country making a prediction that sometimes the communications aren't even fast enough and there has been some glitches with forex with people in different countries where they predicted up and it would have been up but the the internet was slow and so it was wrong so there might even be some things like that going on yeah thanks for that uh sasha would you like to answer your question again I just have a quick question. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering if it's been tried in ARV rather than trying to view the winning outcome, has it been tried to have the viewers try to view the losing outcome? Um, I'm just interested in, in what, what the outcome of that would be. And then secondly, would it not be possible to do two viewings for each uh, event so that you would first do a viewing on the winning outcome and then do a viewing on the losing outcome and then see how those two different approaches might affect displacement. Yes, I know that at, at Marty and his, Marty has tried so many different things. And so there was a time where he was advocating for what you're describing. And John, do you remember the results of that? Well, I don't remember him doing that, but Grin Spickett is here and he, uh, if he can speak, he could talk to that because he's tried to remote view which data comes in first from a photograph and which data comes in second. One would be winning and one would be losing. Marty did propose something called one ARV, which is a little different. So Deborah, I'm not remembering that he did exactly this particular thing. Yeah, I know for a little bit we were doing both and then producing it. So we had to do two sessions one for the winning, one for the losing, and then, but I do remember too, I think that's where he was coming up with the term bleed through. So there was displacement where you're describing the other target and when you're not supposed to be, and then bleed through was when you were getting a little bit of information about both of the targets at the same time. And that was taking place from, from looking at both both of those, but yeah, even as a video displacement can be your friend, which makes me almost want to jump out the window, but okay. <sighs> so, yeah, but, but I think all of this bears more, more uh, replication and, yeah. and definitely I think that is, it would be a great design to do. It just takes more time, but I'm uh, uh, personally, I am of the mindset that if money is going to be involved, why not take the time? Why, why not do fewer trials? Take the time, be more relaxed, be more kind of careful with what you're doing. But there may be, there might be a reason for doing a lot of trials. And I just don't, I don't understand it. If anyone understands here, what might be the advantage of doing more trials quicker? I would love to hear it because I'm still trying to understand that mindset. Mark, did you have something to add to that? Um, the, the, to, to, to add a poker analogy here, the more hands you play, the, the worse your outcome 
So um, taking your time and maybe making smaller, fewer, larger bets might be beneficial from that perspective. And that makes sense to me. I see Paul's had his hand up for a while. Would you like to ask your question, Paul? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I had a question and a comment. So the, um, the question I had was if, if your viewers are picking A versus B, are they judging the strength of their pick? You know, like if, if you really nailed one of the pictures, uh, do you do you grade that stronger, or is it just a is it just a, a a selection regardless of how strong the the hit was? Well, it it depends on the group's protocols, but typically, at least in the in the APP groups, they oftentimes are using scoring. So definitely, there is a, whether it's the seven point. SRI scale, or there's a three-point scale that started to be used a bit that came out of a University of Colorado project. Uh, but let's see what our other, um, Alexis Poquez came up with the Dung Beetle scoring system. So there's a different scoring systems used. I'd say in APP, it's most, the majority has been the seven point scale. So, and then there's different uh, considerations or or different people have looked at, well, should we only make a prediction if we have a four on a seven scale as opposed to a 3.5 or so? And, and years ago, we came up with some general guidelines and then some of us have been doing some testing of that to see, well, when I first started in APP, the general thinking was you should have at least a 3.5 on a seven scale, a seven point scale if you're gonna, uh, really give any credence to the viewers session because there's just always a number of information in there that can just be there because of chance. And then pretty much what we've found in some different projects that I've been involved in is some of it's dependent on the person rating the sessions. And keep in mind, sometimes the viewers are self-scoring and then sometimes you have independent judges. Uh, but regardless, if you want to be conservative, you, you'd really want the score to be higher. And then some judges are much more permissive, some are more strict. So if you know you have a permissive judge, you may really want to, to not even issue a prediction unless you have a, a five or six or seven on a seven point scale. And you know that would be my recommendation probably if you really want to be conservative. And Joe McMonagall and Ed May, they were, uh, they, they use kind of a slightly different process, but they would say the same too, that really you should be, you, you, you're gonna have a lot more passes and it's the project is gonna take a lot longer, but if a lot of money is involved, then, then you want to have a stronger certainty. And so scoring is really, really an important aspect of all of this. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, my experience has been that the stronger your hit, the, the more reliable the result. Um, the, the, I did have a comment to make about the Kelly Criterion money management. I've, I've done a fair amount of study on this. And my understanding is that 
the the concept of Kelly is the fastest way to double your money. Uh, but there's also a risk when you use that amount, 20% or whatever the, the calculation determines that there's a 5% chance of going bust. You know, so you, you double your money the fastest, but there's a one in 20 chance you're going to get wiped out, even if you're hitting your correct percentage. And that people that use Kelly, say, in a casino type setting will divide that amount by four so that if you had a you know if you were using four um, percent for a kelly number because you had a blackjack edge that calculated that you would you'd use um, you'd cut that down to one percent to to try to be safer yeah i think we could have used you at the start of firefly <laughs> they're giving that advice for sure Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, Brett has a question. Would you like to go next, Brett? Sure. Yeah, can you hear me? Is my mic working? Yeah, fine. Cool. So, uh, Deborah, I appreciate you kind of going in through uh, this project, especially since you know it's obviously be nice if every project you work on had a you know an amazing result you could show everyone. But I think if I and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your interest definitely lies more on the academic side and trying to understand the mechanics. Of it, And so being public about, okay, here's what happened, here's how we think it might improve, uh, it makes perfect sense. And I think that's a benefit to the community. Uh, my question for you is a little bit, this, it's more about your opinion, um, is my opinion is, do you feel those that maybe aren't being more forthcoming about their results in the community who have also incurred significant financial losses? that that's a problem because this is something that actually came up uh, a couple months ago. There was an ARV contest thing where there was a big, Daz wrote a whole thing on this where he felt, you know, it's like, it's important that people know kind of what's who they're working with and what their, what their background is before they get involved. And I'm not trying to throw anyone on the bus with here, but I, I do think, you know, due to the nature of this project, it might be helpful. Uh, at least to me, I'd be very curious about your opinion on that. Like, do you think, that should be more in the open so that then it could be problem solved and people aren't misled unwittingly. Cause it seems like a little bit, some people got into Firefly without really knowing everything because you thought one thing, but then the truth of it was, you know, these, these teams only had 30, 48% or 38%, whatever it was. And it wasn't communicated effectively to you as a researcher. Do you think there should be more of that? And uh, from those other groups, or do you have any other opinions on that? I guess. And um, and I'm just curious too. Do you do you know how they have been doing the ARV contest, guys? Do do you know are they have they kept up their results? Um, I only know of one group that's still doing stuff with them. Uh, I don't know any of the specific details though. Um, so I don't know that specifically. But it's more of like it's a broader kind of question though okay. of like people who are doing ARV. Do you, do you wish that more people were kind of open and out in the outcome uh, yeah. with the results? I, I think that we, we need to be open about both our positive and our negative results because that's the only way that we're going to learn from them. And, you know, in, in parapsychology, it was a really big criticism of skeptics 
that now a parapsychologist said this was ungrounded because it wasn't true, but skeptics were saying that there was what's called the file drawer effect, which is really what you're talking about, where if there's good results, they're published. And if they're not, they're just put away and no one hears about them. And that skews results. And parapsychologists uh, at the time when this was being suggested that that's what was going on with, with experiments overall, they pretty much came out to show like, no, that's not the case. But I do think that is the case. And I think that's the case I wish it wasn't, you know, uh, personally, I would probably benefit. I mean, I teach remote viewing and I'm involved in all this. So I I don't, it's working against me to say that there are projects all over the place, both formal, formal projects by academic researchers. I know for a fact, because I've been in them, that if they don't have the results they want, you never hear about them again. And that is true with formal projects and it's true with informal projects. And I'm I'm not saying that like they're trying to consciously intentionally hide it. Maybe some, some are, some I think are with the, with the formal academic ones, you know, so much goes into it, trying to publish a paper. Some of my papers that are just maybe going to be published this year, their projects going back five years. And the so the publishing process is so hard. And if if you don't have positive results, journals may be inclined to not want to publish those. But you know, so we don't know, like, how much is it? Is it that researchers just aren't submitting the papers or they get submitted, but people are just like, oh, well, these results are totally uninteresting. So we're not going to put this out there. Also, whether it's formal projects or informal applied projects, sometimes there's some flaws in the methods and maybe the person who who did the project feels like, you know, the these results, whether they were positive or negative, um, you know, I can't really talk about them too much because there was there was a flaw here and, you know, we were testing something, but there was another variable that came up and, and we can't say for sure it was because of this. If there were these other variables here, we weren't able to control. And so it, some projects just don't get talked about because uh, of that. So, uh, but I do think that it's happening and that it would be useful for people to know when when it's happened. It's just, there's so much, you know, individual viewers, but also they might feel like, oh, people are gonna now think that they're, you know, not good, good psychics. And the thing is then it sets up false expectations and, and then people are more inclined to want to wager. And, and I've, I've had it, this was another reason why I was really glad that our paper was out because I don't want to mislead anyone financially. And I've had people come to me who only had heard about the results like Tar- Russell Targ, he, well, he published his results both when they were good and when they weren't good, but there, there's been enough out there that people have heard about that. And I've had people come to me and say, oh, you know, I want to try to make my fortune with ARV. And I'm like, well, that's great, but you need to, you need to have a realistic picture of this because at, at this point, right. I, I'm not even personally confident that like I wouldn't necessarily be using ARV uh, to to make money at this point. Uh, I, I think it has potential, 
but there may be other methods that are better to use than ARV for making money. Well, I, I definitely appreciate your answer on that. And I think it speaks to, I mean, you and both John's, John Knowles, it, the integrity you guys have to say, here are the results. And I mean, I'm not going to bring anyone else up because it's not my place to do it. I mean, I'm sure you're aware there are other people out there that don't have that same level of integrity, which is concerning to me, which is why I'm glad, you know, it's like you do believe this is an important thing is that, you know, if there are large sums of money that are lost and then that's kind of swept under the rug, it's like, I feel like that's something that is important. And so that those stakes aren't, those mistakes aren't replicated again. And so that also, um, you know, you can learn from them, but also that, you know, it's, you don't want someone to get involved with a group or a group of people, whatever it is. And then under the assumption that they're very successful, but then the truth of it has been kind of hidden behind closed doors. So I do respect, you know, and I appreciate your integrity that you have saying, here's what we got. Here's why we think it was wrong. Here's how I, you know, you think it will be better in the future. And I just hope more people, you know, copy kind of your model of what you're doing moving forward. So appreciate that. And, you know, I used to be kind of more critical because I was like, well, if someone does a project, they should write it up in some way. And then it was brought to my attention. Well, not everybody even can write or knows how to write things up. So then my response to that is, you know, there, there's plenty of writers within the community that people, you know, can do summaries in different, different places, or at least, at least be upfront in talking about it. But again, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that, but if someone, uh, I guess it also depends, like, you know, is it a group that's doing it? Is it just an individual who's just trying some things on their own? And, and this is where it's one thing if you're doing like a really thought out project, but some people are just kind of dabbling and experimenting. And like even our sublime group, we would, when we first got together, we would do 10 trials and try one method. And sometimes it worked great, other times not so good. And then we'd do another 10 trials and try something else and changing it all up. And again, there's so many factors involved. We would have if anyone had like put too much seriousness into what we were doing at any given time or, you know, tried to try, I guess what I'm saying is like, we wouldn't have written that stuff up because it was just so, so experimental in, in the nature of that word. So the, there is some of that going on too. And, you know, I wouldn't expect that someone to just like go and broadcast those results. But I think that if somebody is publicly saying what their stats are that are positive, then then they do have a responsibility to say when their results aren't, aren't um, positive, as opposed to just someone who's just kind of trying out different things on their own. Right. Especially people that are bringing people into groups and things like that, right? That's yeah. the thing. Yeah, exactly. And whether those people are investing their money or their time, that they they have a right to know that for sure. Thanks. Thanks for that, Brett. Matt, you've had your hand up for a while. Would you like to ask your question? I'd love to ask. Um, I was interested. I missed the first hour of this conversation, so this may have already been answered. But um, I was interested in, in linguistics of it. Um, 
is there more accuracy or has there been recorded more accuracy with ARV in different languages? Um, and I know it sounds strange maybe, but um, is there ways you can set up a question or, uh, or something you're trying to find out or an outcome? Are there lessons about how you set up the target, which produce better outcomes, linguistically speaking? Well, in terms of what you phrase to the viewers, as far as like their tasking, what you say to them, you want them to describe. Do you, do you mean like that? I suppose you, the, the first question was, well, every language has almost been a kind of a human invention um, um, and how to arrange verbs, nouns, et cetera. Um, I was wondering, Therefore, has there been, or are there languages which produce better outcomes? Like if you were to maybe take an, a more ancient language, does, does that produce better outcomes? Or has all the kind of information that's going to the conversation been based on what's coming out with English or a more modern language? Um, because uh, I suppose different languages you use uh, linguistics differently like for example in in chinese for example the which is character based it's more the way you would ask a question is different to the way it would be based in a, a more latin based language i was just wondering therefore sometimes i think that when we set something up as a question linguistically um it depends on the language that we are using how it's interpreted and I was wondering if there's been any research on this. Well, that makes thing, any sense. yeah, it does. Now that might get into other psychic work where that might be more relevant, but a lot of times with associative remote viewing, the viewers aren't even really being spoken to other than just told to describe this target and, or they, they aren't even talked to because they're just sent a number and they know that their task is to describe the either the feedback photo that they're going to see in connection with that number or to describe the target that's connected to the number. So that would be working in, in remote viewing lingo that would be called working without front loading. And so you're just told, here's a number, do your session. And, and viewers that are experienced already know how to do that. So it's almost like there isn't language spoken to them. Now there is what the tasker is intending, which might be to describe the feedback photo, but uh, kind of along those same lines. But for associative remote viewing, I don't know that that would make such a difference. Uh, there are definitely remote viewers. We know there's remote viewers in Germany, there's remote viewers in Brazil, uh, I'm some in Mexico, they're, they're scattered uh, uh, Ireland. The, the UK, Canada, uh, so other countries, but there's so many factors involved. So to, to be able to isolate it down to say that uh, one language, that might be kind of like saying, do German remote viewers do better than American remote viewers? There just isn't really enough data to say that the, uh, there's a lot of really great viewers in the UK. There's a lot of great viewers in Canada and America. So 
I, I would say that's a really interesting question, but I'm sure that there hasn't been any exploration into what you're asking about at this point. John? Yeah, I'd like to comment on that. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating topic. And I agree there's no international research about different languages. I've tried using different language people in lottery attempts in a way, um, like if a, if a German speaking person wins and stuff like that without any particular results. Um, I'm losing my thought here. Uh, maybe it'll come back. Okay. Oh, oh okay, I got it. Okay, so it also raises the question of wording. Some people like real simple wording in a task in whatever language it's in. And some people like more complex, like Don Walker, who was uh, involved, who came up with the idea actually of unitary ARV, as far as I know, we worked together and came up with the idea. He liked really detailed uh, written cues. And that's in the video that I have on strict unitary ARV, some examples of those really detailed cues. Whereas Roma, who's also an excellent viewer, didn't really care that much about the wording. And if you look at some of Ed Dame's tasks, uh, not that I'm recommending you look at them, but um, you know, like New York City was one of his cues one time, you know, what, what's with that? So I think that's, but I think the subject you raised is an important one, like Chinese also has a very different number system. So the question is, are, would they be better at getting numbers, uh, which hasn't been looked into by us English speakers anyway, we don't know what's happening in China, but there may be a lot of activity there and in Japan too. Yeah, it, it might be really relevant to, if the task was to just to be able to come up with words, something that uh, many people right now, or maybe not many, but some of us are really interested in. And I think you'll see more exploration in the future is remote viewers describing words and letters and things like that. And then, and then language may be exactly what you're talking about, very relevant for those tasks. Or maybe uh, remove words altogether and just use uh, sketches and pictures because they're universal, aren't they? A just thought for a house is, will be common across the globe, I would have thought, or for a person or for water, that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe yeah but in that, in that sense, that is, how would you, for example, describe war? Your sketch might be some different to someone else. Um, well, you would pick you would pick targets that would be very simple gestalt targets for your binary. So one binary target would be a mountain, one binary target would be a person. So you know that you would only have very simple gestalts that the viewer would ever have to to draw on it. I understand that, but let's say you were doing a future target. Like I've seen ARV sessions when, for example, the the question is. Will there be an upcoming future war, for example? Um, and that was the question. And then it would be, if the answer is yes, you'll um, sketch this. If you the answer is no, you'll sketch something else. Right? But the, the question but, in that case is irrelevant. It doesn't matter about what the question is. The, the answer is A, a tree, or B, a river. It doesn't matter that you're talking about war. That's irrelevant but, but to I, it. Only one of them is saying that True, but I'm saying potentially it could be like an economic war, or it could be a war of attrition, or it could be a war of economics. These are things which are, you know, up for debate maybe linguistically between humans. That it could be. I don't think to... I don't mean the question that we're asking ever is uh, is it play here. I mean it might be in the way that intent in the tasker is entwined in the target. Um, but yeah, for me, it's the, it's the actual outcome things that seem to be causing displacement and all kinds of 
weird things but you know again that might be down to intent as well we just don't know enough about this it's just so complicated at this stage that that does give me the idea though if using languages like chinese with characters if viewers are good at sketching and we want them to come up with an actual word or letter we could have them do that with Chinese characters yeah. or languages that are more pictorial. And I don't know that if that's been done, but that would be a really mm. fantastic project. I think yeah. that, would, that might really produce some great results. So thanks for I only, say, I only say this as someone who used to live in China and learning the language there, everything is either black or white in a sense yeah. when it comes to characters, it's either this or this. Whereas English, let's say, is more open to interpretation, I would, I think, and the slang is also the same. We can change letters around and invent new words, but you can't invent new characters. It has to be the way it is. And then when you look back in history of like of languages in general, where do they all come from? And if they all came from a source, is there more truth in where the languages that we are now currently speaking came from? And is there more evidence to say that the previous ways that we used to talk uh, are better for producing better results, let's say? It's a hard question. Um, and for me, you see, uh, when I do RV sessions, I quite often get words come through in my RV that aren't even part of my common day-to-day -day language. Uh, and I was underlying those because I, I know my own language. So it seems to be that we are getting uh, our data or our language from somewhere that it seems to be like a central hub or, or area of it. And it just comes through to you, whether it's your common language or not. So yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. It, it'd be a great experiment to try if you, uh, yeah. If you know some yeah. Asian remote last... viewers. No, 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 that's fine. Um, this is, this will be my last comment before I leave. Um, but as I say, when you're doing your RV sessions, things are coming through to your head and then you're defining them in the language that you know, I think, or with a sketch. But yeah. in terms of the gestalt, it will be something that you can define within the language that you know. But that, that wasn't kind of the question. The question is, if you set up the question linguistically differently, um, are there, is there any recorded evidence that based on the language or the language, the language type is their better result. That was kind of it because we all interpretate things uh, through our imagination or through pictures and then define it based on the language that we know. But it's the question how you set it up is the thing that I was uh, more interested in. But I think there is, I just don't think it's definitive. For example, uh, Ed Dame, I, find, I find the way Ed Dame sets his majority of his targets particularly good, um, but I think it's only good uh, because what it does is it sets out accurately the intent of the person setting the task. Because essentially what we're doing in remote viewing is we're sending a remote viewer out to look at something, but we're then assessing the accuracy of that remote viewer on what the target, uh, the tasker set as the task. And if he hasn't wrote it down plain enough on what the actual task was, how do you know how to assess the accuracy? So, yeah, I find that the more accurate you get the person setting the task to write it down on a sheet of paper, what they're expecting back from the remote viewer, then you know exactly what you're marking the accuracy of that data against. But 
you know, everyone's doing this in a different way. Sorry, I lied. One more, Daz. Have you ever done, how many targets have you done, like when a tasker has been asking you a question in Spanish? Have you ever done it in a different language? And um, is it changing? Probably none. I don't think, not that I remember. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that would be, that would be interesting. Although again, keep in mind that a lot of, a lot of times the, there's no verbal question except here's a target number. Yeah. So, so I guess that Matt um, would be my question to you since so many remote viewers are only working with target numbers, how then would language make a difference? Would it just, or do you just mean by the, what I'd call like the undisclosed tasking setup of it, because it's not like there's an actual question being posed to the viewers. Um, if, if I wanted to propose a question that I wanted to know an answer of, like maybe a future event with ARV, that I could, for example, set this question and um, ask a friend to put two targets in an envelope or my question is if if I word if I word the question correctly when I'm setting up the target specifically, that I don't know what the what, what the targets are, but if, if I'm trying to find something out using ARV, yeah. then I have a question in my head. And that I wouldn't know then for therefore what the targets are. If I was it wouldn't therefore be front loaded. It'd be an interesting experiment, uh, maybe to get the same tasks targeted by two different viewers and uh, you know so it would be the same target maybe or very in similar multiple targets, languages but in two different languages to see if yeah. if the viewer was less accurate on a language that wasn't in their native language well or for example it would be really interesting to see like a lot of targets then with people who speak different languages because this I is, don't, this is, this is, this is I personally don't think it matters because, you know, there have been many examples as well, uh, and I've been involved in quite a few, where I've actually done remote viewings on targets that don't even exist until two months after I've done the remote viewing. So I do the remote viewing first, and then two months after I've done it, someone picks a, a target of an event that happened a month before, a month in the past, and then sets out the target. So then there is no target when I'm doing the remote viewing. Uh, I Sasha, say, did you want to say something? Well, I was going to say, I, I speak French with my family. So if I've just had a conversation with a family member, a cousin or something, and then later that day, I'll do a remote viewing session. And then I'm thinking in French for the rest of that day, right? Because I was speaking in French. So then that's my, <laughs> that's the language of thought for the day. Um, and so, and I, I don't think, honestly, from, from my perspective, it doesn't matter what language the, the question is in, and it doesn't even matter what language I'm thinking in when I'm doing my remote viewing session. Some words will come through in English and some words will come through in French, regardless of which language I'm thinking in while I'm doing the remote viewing session. And so I would, I, I would suspect it's the same for anyone who's fluent in multiple languages. It's just that the concept, I, I think that there are differences in how accurately some languages define a concept. So there are some words in French that are a little bit more nuanced than the English than the English word and vice versa. And so what I find is sometimes if a French word comes through, when I'm 
doing my remote viewing while thinking in English, it's because that French word is a little bit more precise or has a nuance that the English equivalent doesn't quite have. Um, and it's the same if it's the opposite. If I'm doing my viewing while thinking um, in French and an English word comes through, it's because that English word has a has a flavor to it that, that the French word doesn't quite capture. So so I, I don't think it's I don't see that it would make a difference. I think it's just the information that's coming through and it's filtering through whatever is within your vocabulary. And so I think even if you were doing it in Sanskrit, I think you would get, uh, I think for something like Sanskrit or some of these, these ancient languages or even Latin, you would probably get lesser results because their words tended to have, tended to map on to a, a lot more different concepts so one word mapped on to a lot of different things right whereas English it's very much one-to-one -one, right this means this specific definition and so I, I don't I don't know that using older languages or using something like Sanskrit I don't know that you would get more accurate results that's my question. Oh, that kind of brought in the second part of my question which is about how to set the question so for example if we're doing sports could for example, the word like which team will win be interpreted differently, like maybe one team will win emotionally. Or if you set up the question, which team will score the highest score in this game? And then propose that as the question and then have two, two different targets. But then I think the, the intent, I think, shouldn't be overlooked, right? So even if someone is is writing quite poorly their grammar is bad the question they're using like you said earlier they're using the word war but there are different meanings of the word war is it a, a battle with guns or is it an economic war but i think the intent of the tasker we know somehow gets through to the viewers right well and kind of what kind of what's coming to mind is like the issue with horse racing like what you're saying Matt, that's an issue. Uh, are you asking who's going to come across the finish line or which horse is going to produce the highest uh, amount of money that can be won? And that's been a source of confusion for viewers where you were just said here, say who's going to who's going to win the horse race. So in, in that case, it is helpful to specify what you're talking about for the viewer. Although in some cases, ARV is just set up, just telling the viewer to describe the feedback photo. So again, they won't, they won't, a lot of times viewers don't even know what the event is, much less what's being sought from it. They're just told on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, you're gonna see a feedback photo, just describe that photo. All right, may, should we move? Um, thank you for those questions. And did anyone else? Uh, if we just go to Brett, I think Brett can make Brett the last question. Yeah, um, I have one other question that's a much bit different topic than the last there. Um, I'm curious if the viewers, if you have any data on what the individual's viewers um, financial kind of situation looked like or, I mean, this might be going a little far for just volunteers potentially, but one of the things, the reason why I asked this is if you've ever thought about that or looked into that is because one of the things that I've had, a, I attribute a lot of recent success with ARV personally is because I've done a lot of mindset work on abundance and wealth generation and my relationship with money, things like that. And when I started doing that, and I've, I've also worked with a couple other people that did similar things that their ARV accuracy also increased. 
as a result of that. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder, do you have any data in your research to see, well, you know what, there's this viewer, he's already making a ton of money, but he's not having success with ARV. Or is there like a theme where it's like everyone who is trying to get this with, with ARV is already maybe not making, used to making a lot of money. And so you brought this idea at the beginning, like, oh, if we did this, we'd make $16 million. And it's like, well, what if the individual's mindset or belief system disallows them from actually making $16 million. And therefore that's why, I mean, I don't, can't know for certain, right? It's just an idea, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that or any data suggests that maybe it might be something like that too. Cause I, I certainly is what I'm seeing as potentially uh, a possibility. Yeah, yeah, very good point there. And Marty, Marty Rosenblatt definitely believes in the power of intention and I mean, I do too. I, my third book is on that subject. Now, the thing is, though, with Firefly, everybody was trying to be positive. I mean, I was ironically not so positive at the beginning, although I still participated. But um, so it's kind of hard to say because you had so many people involved. But we did have intention setting sessions. We did get together at least twice. I remember Igor facilitated at least one of those where we got together and we did meditations, we did visualizations, there, there people spoke positively at, at least. And, you know, we, we weren't like publicly voicing doubts. So there was definitely that element of, of trying to achieve that. Now, you know, of course it kind of goes by subconsciously where, where you're really at. So that question that would be really interesting to look at. Like I'm thinking of Greg, Greg, I can't pronounce his last name, Greg K, who did the 13 year study and he with the ARV and he, uh, I think it was something like $150,000 over that period that he earned. However, it really was a combination of his using his awareness of the stock market paired with intuition. But he seemed like he was already someone who was doing well in life and had achieved a certain level of success. He was right. also a, 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 an accomplished cyclist. And, and you can look at too, like for that matter. So Russell Targ, Hal Pudoff, who had the earlier successes, they, they were, I mean, not like independently wealthy guys, but they were, were earning a, a, a decent amount at SRI. I've read their their contracts when uh, when working in Ingo's archives and they were making like four hundred dollars a day, which you know wasn't a bad wage in the seventies and eighties. So that's a really good question, but I don't. It hasn't been assessed. And along those lines, I, I really feel like what the the whole question around finances is the least studied area as far as I'm concerned in ARV a lot of times people aren't even talking about what they're wagering so Firefly is different because we had those ongoing stats but traditionally even under the APP umbrella where individual people are just wagering they're not sharing what they're doing so we don't even know in, in any group 
when when a viewer receives a prediction, whenever someone receives a prediction, we don't know what they're doing with it. Are they wagering themselves? How much are they wagering? Are they wagering in the direction of the group prediction or are they wagering on their own? When we've been at conferences in Vegas where, where there's group predictions, I personally, and I know lots of other people where we've gone against the group prediction because we didn't trust the group prediction, we trusted our own viewings more. And what impact does that have? So that, that's why I say there's so many factors. And if, if it really matters, I, I would wanna know if I'm part of a group and, and there's a couple of people making wagers and maybe they're wagering against the prediction, what, how does that influence everything? And that's not, that's typically not, it's not that it's not disclosed, it's that people have such a sense that this is private, that they're not talking about it and maybe they're not required to. And in one project we did where we set it up as more of a formal experiment, this was our associative remote dreaming project. I tried to get people First, I didn't want I didn't want the individual viewers to receive the predictions because I didn't want this outside variable that we couldn't trust. But then there were a couple of people in our group where it was felt like they wanted to be able to make predictions. So we said, okay, well then we just want you to report when you may. I, I mean, they wanted to wager with the predictions. So, so I said, okay, well I just want you to report if you are wagering so we can track this. But then it wasn't really tracked. And at that point I had stepped away from as the researcher, when, when we were carrying out the trials, I wanted to be one of the viewers or dreamers. So I didn't have control over that. And so there is just this problem with tracking that information. And, and I really think this is something that we would learn a lot if we could explore exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's the kind of, I think you mentioned this before where there's I've seen in other groups where when an individual was only using ARV and there was no money on the line, uh, they actually could do quite well. They get up into the 60s, maybe the low 70s uh, when it, it was just for fun, like play money. They're, they're, there's, there's no skin in the game. And the moment they put some skin in the game and it was their own money that was a risk, they, they crashed really rather quickly down to 50%. And that's what a couple of years ago got me thinking. It's like, well, that seems like a self-sabotage thing. That doesn't seem like an ARV problem. That sounds like an individual problem. And so that's like, how do you separate an individual's self-sabotage mindset stuff from the mechanics of ARV? And could it be that there's a lot of misinterpreting why things are failing because we're unable to kind of open the hood to see what's causing the miss or the failure because it's so individualistic? I don't know. I bet that's what started that line of questioning a couple of years ago for me. So I figured I'd ask you. Yeah. And Lori Williams says, like when to, with the example where they did well for the first hundred trials and then they found out that it was wagering was involved and then it started to tank. She had been part of a Christian faith group where they were supposed to renounce uh, any kind of wealth or personal belongings. And she got out of that, but it was soon, it, it was not that long between the time when she was involved in that mindset. I think she's, she's, you know, worked her way out of that over the years, but at the time she was still very much in, ingrained in that. So I think you're really onto something there and it's, it's really hard to separate it out when people are working, working as a group, it would be interesting maybe to take, 
individuals that have had good results lately and then examine both their maybe their economic status and also their belief system and have they worked i can say on a psychic level because i do outside of remote viewing i do a lot of uh, clairvoyant readings with people and i and it shows up immediately uh, without people saying like what their background is if they've worked with concepts like the law of attraction uh, intention setting it shows up right away that there there's an impact like i i can tell when people have worked on it and usually there there is wealth coming in and it's because that they've set those intentions and that's another reason why i feel like i've got independent verification of like the work that that you do that there there is a, an effect when people put these principles into action cool thanks appreciate the answer Deborah, I'm going to think we should end it there because we kept you going for two hours. I just want to say on behalf of everyone, thank you for a really informative and interesting talk. Um, I've put the link to your new book in the chat for people there. Uh, remind us again, when, when is the, is for pre, pre-order right now, isn't it? Yes, it's available for pre-order. There was a problem with the pre-order before and every it got canceled and everyone got their money back. And now if anyone did that, you have to pre-order it again, but it should be out. I'm thinking for like available actually within the week. And so hopefully that'll be the case. And then John and I are going to be on coast to coast AM on this Sunday night. So if anyone wants to tune into that. Oh, wow. Excellent. It will just the people that aren't subscribers of that, will we be able to get a link to it or, or something so we can listen offline? Yeah, I think that if you're not a subscriber, you can, I think you can tune in in real time, even if you're not a subscriber. And then later on, I'm not sure how that will work, but but I'll try to, I'll try to download the recording and then make it available. Yeah, that'd be fantastic if, you know, we can keep it semi-private between us all. Yeah. I, I'm nervous about it because, you know, our book is 700 pages long and there's so many details that I just don't remember. That's why I like John to be here because he could fill in on stuff. So I'm hoping they don't ask us real specific questions. Well, good luck with that. And, and again, thank you for coming along this evening. It's been really informative. Uh, I think a lot of us learn a, a lot today and, you know, we know that we need we need to do a lot more to learn a lot more as well from all this. Yeah, thank you everyone for your great great questions and participation and being here. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. And thank you everyone else for coming along. Hopefully we'll see you next week. I don't know what's going on then. Uh, We'll see what happens. Uh, But have a good week anyway and take care, everyone. Thanks. Take care. Thank you, Deborah. Thanks, Daz. Thanks, Deborah. Yeah, take care. Thank you, Deborah. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.